This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. If you've received your November issue, you know we featured a special report on the varieties of religious community today. I'm here to speak with the editors and writers who worked to put this special issue together and to hear from them about what they learned about the communities they visited and the people who make up some of the orders, lay movements, and houses of hospitality that we featured. Our special issue on religious community is featured on this special episode of the Commonweal Podcast. And so to get our conversation started, I'm here with senior editor Matthew Goodway. So why don't we talk a little bit, or why don't you talk a little bit, I suppose, about how we came up with this uh, special issue? Well, we were looking for a follow-up to a special issue that we published in April 2020, just as the, the pandemic began arriving in this country. That special issue had to do with parish life in the United States, and it was conceived, obviously, long before the pandemic. But when we talked later on, over a year later, about how we could follow up on that, one idea that occurred to us was to look at religious communities throughout the United States, religious communities understood in the broadest sense of the term, to include not only religious orders, but also houses of hospitality, lay movements, sodalities, confraternities, um, ecclesial movements of various kinds, and to get enough of these together so that it would function as a kind of survey of contemporary religious life in the United States. So that was the idea. The subtitle of the piece is The Varieties of Religious Community Today, and that's obviously a reference to William James's famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And James had argued that the most important thing about religious experience was uh, individual experience, not institutions, not doctrines. And our subtitle refers to that partly as a tribute, but also partly as uh, a gentle challenge, because what becomes clear in these pieces is how individual religious experience is me almost always mediated through relationships with others, and perhaps most obvious in formal religious vows, but it's obvious throughout the package. And so that was the idea. We ended up with five long features about five religious communities of various kinds, and then three shorter sidebar testimonials by members of other religious groups throughout the United States. So there's obviously a lot of uh, diversity and variety among these communities, but We've also, I think, spotted some common denominators, didn't we? Yes. One of the common denominators had to do with the timing of the package. Because it was put together, reported, written during the pandemic, the normal sense of uncertainty that attends any undertaking like a religious community was heightened, to say the least. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of precariousness. There was a lot of, a lot of worry about what the future would be for some of these communities and how they would adapt to the challenges that, that the pandemic itself pre presented. So one example of that is the Catholic Worker House in Houston, Texas. It's called Casa Juan Diego, and its co-founder, Louise Zwick, wrote for us about their experience adapting to a radically new situation. Normally, they deal with a lot of refugees and undocumented people from across the southern border, but when the border shut down, their remit changed radically. Suddenly, they were dealing with people from the Houston community, many of them undocumented people who had lived in Houston, in the Houston area for some time, restaurant workers who suddenly didn't have jobs because of the pandemic and needed food. So they started taking massive shipments from the Houston Food Bank, and they actually rebuilt the main building of the Casa Juan Diego so that they could accommodate the, the large number of people who were arriving in search of basic sustenance. So 
that that gives you an example of someone who realized that there was still important work to be done, but it wouldn't be exactly the same work they had done before. But that that same theme appears in other features in the package, perhaps less obviously, but all the people that we're writing about here had to reconsider what it meant to be a religious community in the face of a massive national and indeed international crisis. So obviously we're editors and we made these assignments, but even as readers, I think we found ourselves interested in these pieces. Was there any particular detail revealed or anything that struck you as particularly interesting or compelling that you might not have necessarily been aware of before? One thing that stood out to me as an editor was the idea of what Cardinal Avery Dulles called a contrast society. And this is something that Regina Munch writes about in feature of Bethlehem Farm in West Virginia. The idea is that all of these communities, whether they're lay communities or vowed religious communities, they all involve the presentation of the gospel as a radical alternative to society at large, to the surrounding world. They are, as someone puts it, intended to attract attention, not in a way that would be uh, repellent to others, because another important aspect of all of these communities is hospitality and inviting people, not just to join the communities, but inviting people who aren't in the community to engage with them so that they can be of greater service to their neighbors and to the places where uh, they're rooted. And so there's a tension there with this idea of contrast, and it's an important one because these people are the salt of the gospel, and if the salt loses its flavor, we're all in trouble. But at the same time, they are there to learn from the example of the people that they serve, the people they work with. And in many cases, what happens to the religious orders, the more traditional, older religious orders that we profile in the package, is that they have some kind of liminal institution in the case of the Incarnation Monastery in Berkeley that Kaya Oaks writes about for us. There's an obliture program. So this is people who are part of the community in one sense, but they're not fully vowed monks. They're people who live in the world, but also have a, a relationship, a, a liturgical and spiritual relationship to the community. And that kind of bridge between the community, which traditionally would be understood as a kind of cloistered monastic affair, and the busy world of Berkeley, California that surrounds it is very interesting because I think it's changed gradually the way the monks think of their own role and their own work in the world. Well, good. I'm glad you mentioned both those pieces because we'll be hearing from the authors in a moment. And uh, Matt, thanks for uh, being here to talk about the uh, special issue. Thank you, Dominic. One of the benefits of working on a report like this is sending writers out to spend some time among the communities we wanted to profile. Assistant editors Regina Munch and Griffin Olenek did just that. I'm here with Regina Munch and Griffin Olenek, both assistant editors at Commonweal. Regina, thanks for being here. Hi, Dominic. And Griffin, good to see you. Hey. You guys both actually went out and visited communities. And I think, Regina, I'm going to start with you. You went to Bethlehem Farm in Alderson, West Virginia. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about how you came to choose this community to write about. Sure. When I was an undergraduate at Villanova, I worked in the campus ministry office. And for service break trips, the campus ministry would often send Villanova students to Bethlehem Farm in West Virginia to do a week of service and live with the community Bethlehem Farm is a Catholic intentional community. There's 12 permanent members. They live on a homestead atop a mountain in West Virginia, and they have four cornerstones of living, prayer, simplicity, 
community and service. And I've always been interested in sustainability. They have a major focus on sustainable living, simple living. And I wanted to know if this was a way for more Catholics to live a more authentic or radically authentic Catholic life. How much time did you spend there, actually? I was there for four days. Okay. And what was there anything that sort of uh, struck you while you were visiting? One or two things that got your attention while you were there? The focus of the community is very much on, they don't use this term so much, but living off the land of growing their own food as much as possible, as sustainably as possible. They use a lot of permaculture ideas and in their daily life, they try to be as gentle toward the earth as possible. So limit the amount of showers they take per week. They are 100% solar. They compost. They're very careful and very intentional about the way that they interact with the resources that they have. Mm. So Bethlehem Farm calls itself a contrast community using Avery Dulles's language of a contrast society. And that Dulles defines that as a small group of people that lives in such a way that only makes sense within the context of a faith in God's care and abundance. So one of their main tenets is the idea that cooperation is part of the good news. So there's enough time and energy and food and love for everyone. And they live in such a way that if that's not true, their community doesn't make any sense. And they're very forthright about that. Mm. So I guess that sort of leads to another question too. What do you think about the viability of a community like this? What were, what were your impressions? I, yeah, I came in with that question because it is 12 people, which includes one family of five, but everyone else is pretty much a single person. Many of them are young, just out of college, perhaps. So I was wondering how much it feels like a community properly with people coming in and out all the time, with lots of volunteers in and out all the time. Some caretakers expressed to me that they wanted to leave and start a family. And I wondered if they would start a family at Bethlehem Farm or if that was a good place for them to do that or not. So I am still not totally sure what I think, but you can read more about it in my article. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, Regina. And Griffin, I'm going to turn to you. And you visited a Norbertine community in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I think I'll ask the same kind of questions, really. So why did you choose this community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so I had some experience in religious life myself and was interested in thinking about both the history and the future of religious life, especially in America. Uh, the reason that I thought Santa Maria de la Vida would be a good choice is that it is a traditional religious order. The Norbertines are just this year celebrating the 900th anniversary of their founding, but they're also in a, a very different place from our context here in the Northeast. They're in the American Southwest, which has its own distinctive brand of Catholicism. And I think we talked a lot about this piece as you were going about writing it, but I wonder if you could share some of the things that you had mentioned to me in the process about what you were finding interesting about your experience there. To me, one of the most interesting things about the Norbertines is that they're very upfront about the fact that they were founded for no particular ministry. They think of community itself as a ministry. And this is very different from other kinds of religious orders like the Jesuits, Dominicans, or Franciscans all tend to have very specific charisms and very specific kinds of work that they do. Not so with the Norbertines. They're sort of a blend of contemplative prayer as well as active ministry within their local community. So that was what struck me. And I, I really got a sense of that when I was there. The place itself, the geography sort of gives an idea of what the community is about. That is, it's set apart on 70 acres of natural high desert on the mesa outside of Albuquerque. But you can see down into the city, you can see the highway, the busy highway that uh, goes by the property. 
And it's very easy to get to and from the city, from the Abbey. And that's how the Norbertines want it. They want to be able to work. They want to be able to serve the Archdiocese of Santa Fe that they're living in. But they also want to be slightly removed to, to provide a conducive atmosphere to prayer and contemplation. So also interesting is the fact that it's the youngest abbey, the newest Norbertine abbey in the world. And it's also one of the smallest. It only has 12 members. You know, this leads me to the same type of question I just asked Regina. I mean, when you have a community like this, relatively small, what do you think about its viability? So the question makes me think of two things. On the one hand, it's incredibly viable because you need a sort of small community to have the intense personal relationships that make religious life a distinctive thing. That is, it feels very non-institutional. It feels very fraternal. They follow the rule of St. Augustine. Augustine's desire was to live in monastic community with a very small number of people. And it's not by chance that they're trying to imitate the early apostles there were 12 disciples, there are 12 Norbertines. So it does facilitate that kind of a brotherly environment in which they existed with one heart and one mind, as they put it. On the other hand, if you want to continue an institution, you need vocations. And that's something that this community has struggled with. A, a unique hardship that the community faced over the summer was the tragic death of their vocation director, Father Graham Golden. So they're struggling to overcome that. They're very much aware that they need more vocations, but they are getting some. In fact, when I was there, I met a young man from Nigeria who was in the process of discerning his entry into the community. Okay, Regina and Griffin, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest will probably be familiar to Commonweal readers. Longtime contributor Paul Eli is here to talk about the interview he conducted for our special issue with the leaders of the Sant'Egidio community in New York City. Hi, Paul. Thanks for being here on the Commonweal podcast. It's nice to be back, Dominic. And thanks for asking me. So I want to talk about the interview you did for us. Uh, you preface it by noting that the Santa Gidio community in the United States is still something of a mystery. And maybe you could give a little overview for listeners who may not be familiar with the community and what it's about. So the community of Santa Gidio was founded in Rome in 1968. Andrea Riccardi, who was a student at Eliseo in Rome, was moved by the events of 1968 in Europe, where students called for change asserted the rights of the younger generation, et cetera, and had also been moved by the Second Vatican Council. These two things together led him and eventually some other students to ask, well, what are the Catholics doing in this year of dramatic social change? They started meeting together of prayer and friendship at the Chiesa Nuova church associated with St. Philip Neri in the center of Rome and became what they called the community. Then two, three, four years passed, and they were given the use of a disused a convent in a small but centrally located square in Trastevere in Rome, Piazza Sant'Egidio. And this convent is still the uh, base of their operations. That small, lovely church, which is done up in ways that are highly traditional, but also really simply expressive, the Sant'Egidio approach to Catholicism, some meeting rooms and a gathering space. And if you spend any time in Trastevere in Rome, you can walk through that piazza six or seven or eight times a day. And so often the community of Sant'Egidio is out in the streets around the Basilica of Santa Maria in Trastevere there. 
as the community grew, their nightly prayer service gathered people and eventually switched from their small church to the vast and gorgeous Basilica of Santa Maria Trastevere, the oldest church dedicated to Mary in the Western world, as I understand it. And it's gone there you know, pretty much continuously since 1973. Significant other things have happened since then. In 1986, the gathering of leaders of world religions that John Paul II brought together in Assisi got a lot of attention, positive and negative. And he drafted the community to to carry that impulse forward. And they've done it ever since with a yearly prayer for peace, held sometimes in Assisi, sometimes in Rome, sometimes in other major cities, usually every September. And growing out of that, they've done all sorts of work on what we now very familiarly think of as the periphery, because Pope Francis has made that term part of his vocabulary. Schools for the poor on the outskirts of cities work with the elderly who are marginalized in society, uh, work with gypsies and other displaced and insufficiently welcomed people, an attempt to work out peace between rival factions in countries in Africa and elsewhere. There's a whole list of projects as to formal a term, things to which the community has brought its attention almost invariably for the better. And in the United States, I think a lot of us are, are we're still uh, not as well acquainted with the Santa Judeo community as we might be with some others. Is that right too? I think that's right. I came to know of it through Tom Cale, the author of How the Irish Saved Civilization, The Gifts of the Jews, and other books. I was writing a piece for the Times Magazine about Catholic-Jewish relations, and I went to Rome. And Tom was leading a Sant'Egidio informal group at St. Malachy's near Times Square. I sought him out there. He said, go see such and such people in Rome and then come and join us when you're back. And I did both. In Rome, I met Mario Marziti, who was then the portavoce of the community, the spokesperson. But that gives no sense of breadth and informality and passion of his work. And he introduced me to a number of other people. That was an extraordinary week that I spent meeting a number of people from the community of Sant'Egidio. And then back in New York, I joined Tom and a few others in this weekly um, prayer meeting. Tom and I and one other person would typically pass the homilies around. So a third of the weeks I did the homilies. And then life intervened. I suddenly had three children and was finishing a book. Tom was traveling and working on a seven volume series. We wound down that group, but I've stayed in touch with the people in Rome, especially ever since. I think the readers of the interview will likely come away with a good sense of just how Paula and Andrea think about the mission of the community here in New York. But I'm wondering if there's anything you learned in speaking with them that either surprised you or hadn't known about yet. What strikes me about the community of Sant'Egidio is significantly different from the reputation that they have in Europe. In Europe, it's very prominent. Their doings are registered in the world of, for lack of a better term, center-left religious life. Everybody knows what they're up to. Here in the United States, they're doing all sorts of things without aggrandizing or really calling attention to themselves. I live in New York. I joined the community of Sant'Egidio for their annual Christmas meal where Christmas is served for probably a couple hundred people, a joyful occasion. But many of the projects that they told me about in that interview were things I was learning about for the first time. And to me, that's characteristic of Sant'Egidio I know, which is this group of people that are tremendously efficient and effective without seeming to perturb themselves with structures and organization and grant getting and a lot of other things that we associate with NGOs. 
I still don't really understand quite how they do it, but they're, the range of good things is extraordinary. And the, the, the kind of surprise and seeming offhandedness of it is also extraordinary. It seems like a, a good sort of segue into my, this question. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think about the, the prospects and the potential role of a community like Santa Gidio in the context of American Catholicism in the years ahead. I've been thinking about that for years, really. In 2004, I went to Rome with an assignment from the Atlantic to write about community of Santa Gidio. And the piece which I wrote was then set aside when John Paul died. I did a very long piece for the Atlantic and they just couldn't um, carry both the 12 issues a year or whatever. So I had to set aside the piece about Santa Gidio. But in that long piece, I tried to answer the question you're asking. And in some respects, uh, what happens in Italy or in Europe then happens in the United States 50 years later. American exceptionalism aside, the distinctiveness of the American church aside, you can see uh, the relationship between American Catholicism and European Catholicism in so many ways. So, for example, in the middle of the last century in Europe, church attendance was very high. It's hard to believe now. And then it uh, dropped precipitously uh, pretty quickly after the 60s. And the sense of the church's former centrality in society was acute for people. And I think something like that's happening now in this country. And Sant'Egidio suggests a way forward, partly because instead of agonizing about the status of Christianity in society, the future of the church, they just confidently go ahead and do things. They're happy to be believers. They're not carrying the weight of the church on their shoulders. They're just doing what they say, which is the gospel and friendship. And there's such a relief to move off the grid of theories of culture and just um, get down to things, which I associate uh, with their way uh, of approaching life in the church. And weirdly enough, it's a voluntaristic kind of faith that we typically associate with the United States, that you choose your church, you choose your community, your, the fact that you've chosen it is a part, a deep part of, of your spirituality. All those things which never existed in Europe because you were a Catholic or a Lutheran by virtue of what country you were raised in or what family were suddenly opened up after the collapse of um, institutional religion, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So Santa Gidio is an expression of a kind of free or voluntaristic faith that, needless to say, is very congenial to this country and to our own religious history. Okay. Thanks, Paul Eli, for being with us today. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk about Santa Gidio, too. <laughs> Great. Thanks. If you like what you're hearing, I'd like to encourage you to rate and review the Commonweal Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And please, if you have friends who like podcasts, tell them about us. Your reviews help us bring these conversations to new listeners. And if you haven't already, consider making a one-time or recurring donation. Your support helps make this work possible. Just see our donate link on the Commonweal website. Kaya Oaks is another regular contributor to Commonweal, and for our special issue, she wrote about a small community of Kamaldolese monks in Berkeley and Big Sur, California. Our associate editor, Matthew Sipman, talks with Kaya about what she learned. Hey, Kaya, welcome back to the Commonweal Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. 
You wrote a really wonderful essay called Silence in the City for the November issue of Commonweal, which, as listeners know, was our special issue on varieties of religious community. What was the focus of your essay? So there were two stories to tell. One was about these two monasteries, one that's at Big Sur, which is about two hours south of the Bay Area, and one that's the the daughter monastery, which is such a strange idea that monasteries have babies, but <laughs> and they're all girls apparently, <laughs> and yes, it's all male. Anyways, the Berkeley Monastery has a very large oblate community, and not to be too much of an academic, but oblates are people who take vows to a monastery but are lay people, so they don't live in the monastery. And interestingly, over the course of COVID, the oblate community has grown, even though they're not able, they just recently started meeting again in person, but the monastery in Berkeley is very tiny. It's a house and their chapel is literally the living room. And so many of the oblates come from, have joined them from all over the world during the pandemic for prayer and um, community. One of the, I think, really distinctive aspects of your essay is the focus on the oblates. And you really give some wonderful descriptions of how they handled the pandemic. And you mentioned that they would meet virtually and that kind of grew the community of people involved. But bracketing the pandemic for a moment, I'm also interested in what it is that attracts oblates to New Kamadali and even the, the kind of mother monastery at Big Sur. You emphasize the kind of balance of the life of the monks. And that's a gift they've given to lay people involved. And could you describe that some, like what you meant by balance, balance between what and what that means for a monk, what that means for a lay person? Sure. So the Kamaldolese community that runs these two monasteries, they're a branch of the Benedictine family. And the Benedictine charism is aura and labora. So that's prayer and work. And we don't have to go into the whole history of reformations of <laughs> religious orders, but all of the religious orders that came out of St. Benedict who invented the idea of a monastery have some form of that. What the Kamaldolese add is solitude. So so they call themselves the Kamaldolese hermits. And so they are officially like Carthusians. They're hermits who live in communities. So their day as monks involves a balance of solitude, community, and prayer. And so oblates who take vows similarly are encouraged to have some solitude in their day, whether that takes the form of solitary prayer in silence or just going for a walk by yourself or whatever. So that balance, I think, between solitude and community is something a lot of people were trying to figure out during the pandemic. And as we go in back into quote-unquote real life after the pandemic, how much are we going to carry that solitude that we've established with us and how much are we going to abandon it? And the monastic way of the Kamaldoli is a good model of having both. You talked to a number of people for this piece, including mm -hmm. Father Andrew Berkeley, but really the heart of the piece was the lay people and especially the lay women you spoke with. And I wondered when you were talking to the various people you interviewed, what stood out to you about your conversations with them? Because they were all oblates of some kind. What drew them, if there were any common denominators, what drew them to this particular style of spirituality and especially as women, how they have experienced that? 
From the beginning, Father Andrew and the other monk who founded the Berkeley community, the other monk house passed away, had this idea that it was going to be men and women. And so it was founded long enough back that we didn't have a lot of models of, of communities like that. And that is something that was very important to them as an idea that it that the monastic life could be open to lay people of all genders. And when I asked Father Andrew, I said, who should I talk to? He suggested these two women who are very deeply involved in the community, one of whom is the first oblate. So she is the first oblate of both monasteries. And she was invited by the monks to become that person because she was already so involved as a lay person that it just made sense for them to say, do you want to take vows? And it has evolved into more formal process with discernment. But what I found that both Pamela and Jacqueline, who I profiled have in common, is that they both see their lives as oblates, as a refuge from their careers. And so in some ways, the oblate, one thing Pamela says that I quoted that I thought was really beautiful was the idea that monks have a cell that they go to to pray in. And oblates carry their cell inside of them wherever they go. What's your sense of how many of these oblates are there now at these communities in particular that you profiled? When we say it's something that seems to be gaining traction, that's on the rise, you know, what does that mean practically? How many people are we talking Mm -hmm. about? The Big Sur Monastery has hundreds and hundreds. I don't know exactly how many. And you have to get on a waiting list to go on a retreat there. It's very popular. And so that tells you something about the attraction of that place. Now, part of that is because it's very expensive to go to a hotel in Big Sur. (laughs) And you can Uh stay with the monks for a lot less. But the Berkeley community has... I think Jacqueline said that the Oblate news that she writes goes out to about 250, 300 people. So for a a community where the chapel can literally only hold 30 people or so, that's enormous. And I think it is going to continue to grow. And it's something that the Oblates talked about is this question is that a lot of these monastic communities, the monks are getting very old and dying and so they are something like the nuns and nuns project the sisters in some religious orders are trying to they realize that they're not going to get vocations and so they're trying to do a knowledge transfer to lay people instead in the hope that they will carry on the charism yeah maybe a a final question about the, the lay people's interest in these spiritual practices and being a part of these communities as oblates or otherwise, for some people, going to a typical mass where it's maybe not as quiet or you're expected to go to the coffee hour afterwards or they ask you for money or please sign up for this, please sign up for that. If you're an introvert or someone who's really just in this particular season of your life is more interested in contemplation, silence, interiority, than being entertained at Mass, that these communities offer a way to practice their Catholic faith that way, in a kind of less demonstrative, more quiet way, you mm-hmm. might say. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I used to go to a parish that had a 10 p.m. Mass that was silent, just a little bit of music and 
just candles and it's beautiful, but I can't stay up that late anymore. But I think that there's something for parishes to pay attention to here is that there is a growing interest in contemplative practice. And it's not just in Catholics, it's in a lot of the oblates are uh, mainland Protestants or evangelicals who are discovering this tradition and are very attracted to it. So what can other churches do to offer something like that? I don't want church to be a circus. And I enjoy, (laughs) once in a while, I enjoy that, but more often I find it a distraction. And I think that many people are coming out of the pandemic feeling the same way. This is too much. I can't handle this. So maybe that's something more churches need to look at as a possibility. Thank you, Kaya. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. Happy to be here. Thank you. In addition to all the communities you just heard about, our special issue on the varieties of religious community today also features profiles of the Marianist lay community by Naomi Dionda, the Dominican Sisters of Peace by Ann Killian, the Knights of Peter Claver by Lauren Warner, and Casa Juan Diego in Texas by Louise Zwick. Naomi Dionda and Ann Killian will be joining Gustavo Morello for a special Commonweal Conversations event that's happening on December 6 at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. They'll pick up on some of the topics and issues they talked about in our special package on religious community. You can find out more at our events page. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.